0: Chapter Thirty One of the Mysteries of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosie. The Mysteries of London by George Reynolds. Chapter Thirty One Explanations. With the greatest forethought and the best taste, Louisa had forwarded to her mistress the most simple and unassuming garb which the boudoir contained amongst its miscellaneous articles of female attire dressed in the garments which suited her sex eliza was a fine and elegant woman above the common female height yet graceful in her deportment and charming in all her movements her shoulders possessed that beautiful shape and the contours of her bust were modelled in that ample and voluptuous mould which forms such essential elements of superb and majestic loveliness Although so long accustomed to masculine attire, there was nothing awkward, nothing constrained in her gait. Her step was free and light, and her pace short, as if that exquisitely turned ankle and long narrow foot had never known aught save the softest silken hose, and the most delicate prunella shoes. In a word, the beauty of Eliza Sidney was of a lofty and imposing order a pale high-brow melting hazel eyes a delicately chiselled mouth and nose and a form whose matured expansion and height were rendered more commanding by its exquisite symmetry of proportions the morning journals published an account of the extraordinary attempt at fraud detected at the bank on the previous day and the utmost curiosity was evinced by an immense crowd that had collected to obtain a view of the prisoners especially the female one as they alighted from the separate cabs in which they were conveyed to the mansion house for re-examination. Eliza's countenance was flushed and animated, and the expression of her eyes denoted profound mental excitement. Stevens was ghastly pale. The lawyer maintained a species of sullen and reserved composure. The police office at the mansion house was crowded to excess. St. Peter Lorry presided, and on his right hand was seated the Earl of Warrington mr pakenham was also present in company with the solicitor of the bank of england the moment the prisoners appeared in the dock eliza in a firm tone addressed the magistrate and intimated her intention of making the most ample confession in accordance with her promise of the preceding day she was accommodated with a chair and the chief clerk proceeded to take down the narrative which detailed the origins and progress of this most extraordinary conspiracy alas that so criminal a tale should have been accompanied by the music of that flute-like voice and that so foul a history should have emanated from so sweet a mouth those words of guilt which trembled upon her lips resembled the slime of the snail upon the leaf of the rose when the confession of eliza sidney was fully taken down and signed by her the earl of warrington's solicitor entered into a statement which placed the magistrate in full possession of the facts of the case we shall now proceed to acquaint our readers with the complete history formed by these revelations the late earl of warrington was a man of eccentric and peculiar habits an accident in his infancy had rendered his person deformed and stunted his growth and being endowed with tender feelings and acute susceptibilities He could not bear to mingle in that society where his own physical defects were placed in strong contrast with the fine figures, handsome countenances, and manly forms of many of his aristocratic acquaintances. He possessed a magnificent estate in Cambridgeshire, and in the country-seat attached to that domain did he pass the greater portion of his time in solitude. The bailiff of the Warrington estate was a widower, and possessed an only child, a daughter, Letitia Hardinage was about sixteen years of age when the Earl first took up his abode in Cambridgeshire in the year 1790. She was not good-looking, but she possessed a mild and melancholy expression of countenance and an amiability of disposition, which rendered her an object of interest to all who knew her. She was fond of reading, and the library at the neighboring mansion was always open to her inspection. The reserved and world-shunning Earl soon became attracted towards Letitia Hardinage, he found that she possessed a high order of intellect, and he delighted to converse with her. By degrees he experienced a deep attachment towards a being whose society often relieved the monotonous routine of his life, and the gratitude which Letitia entertained towards the earl for his kindness to her soon partook of a more tender feeling. She found herself interested in a nobleman of high rank and boundless wealth, who was compelled to avoid the great world where the homage shown to his proud name appeared to him to be a mockery of his physical deformity. She ministered to him with all a woman's devotedness during a tedious and painful malady which seized upon him shortly after his arrival in Cambridgeshire, and at length her presence became, as it were, necessary to him. They loved, and although no priest blessed their union, they entertained unalterable respect and affection for each other that dread of ridicule which had driven the earl from society and which with him was a weakness amounting almost to folly prevented the solemnization of his nuptials with the woman he loved she became pregnant and the day that made the earl the father of a daughter robbed him of the mother of that innocent child who was thus born in sin letitia hardnage the earl's natural child grew up in health and beauty the father was dotingly attached to her and watched her growth with pride and adoration she was sixteen years of age when Frederick, the Earl's nephew and heir presumptive to the title and vast estates of the family, arrived in Cambridgeshire to pay his respects to his uncle on his emancipation from college. The young man's parents had both died in his infancy, and he was entirely dependent upon the Earl. Letitia Hardinage passed as the niece of the Earl of Warrington. Frederick was acquainted with the real history of the young lady, and previous to his arrival at the mansion of his uncle, he was not prepared to treat her with any excess of civility. He was brought up in that aristocratic school, which looks upon pure blood as a necessary element of existence, and as alone entitled to respect. But he had not been many days in the society of Miss Hardinge before his ideas upon this subject underwent a complete change, and he could not help admiring her. Admiration soon led to love— he became deeply enamoured of her. The earl beheld this attachment on his part, and was rejoiced. A union between the two cousins would secure to his adored daughter that rank and social position which he was most anxious for her to occupy. As the wife of the heir presumptive to the richest earldom in the realm, her origin would never be canvassed nor thought of. But Letitia herself returned not the young man's love." By one of those extraordinary caprices which so often characterize even the strongest female minds, she had taken a profound aversion to her suitor, and being of high and independent disposition, not even the dazzling prospect of wealth and title could move her heart in his favor. There was a farmer upon the earl's estate of the name of Sidney. He had a son whose Christian name was Stanford, a handsome but sickly youth, and by no means comparable to the polished and intellectual Frederick. Nevertheless, Letitia entertained for this young man an affection bordering upon madness. The earl discovered her secret, and was deeply afflicted at his daughter's predilection. He remonstrated with her, and urged the necessity of conquering her inclinations in this respect. It was then that she showed the temper and the spirit of a spoiled child, and declared that she would follow the dictates of her own mind in preference to every other consideration the earl swore a most solemn oath that if she dared marry stanford sydney neither she nor her husband should ever receive one single shilling from him reckless of this threat indifferent to the feelings of that father who had cherished her so fondly the perverse girl one morning abandoned the paternal home and fled with stanford sydney on whom she bestowed her hand the blow came like a thunderbolt upon the head of the old earl He was naturally of a delicate and infirm constitution, and this sudden misfortune proved too much for his debilitated frame. He took to his bed, and a few hours before his death he made a will consistent with his oath. He left all his property to his nephew, with the exception of forty-one thousand pounds, the amount of his savings since he had inherited the title. This will ordained that his nephew should enjoy the interest of this aunt, but that should Letitia bear a male child to stanford sydney such issue should upon attaining the age of twenty-one years receive as his portion the above sum of forty-one thousand pounds such was the confidence which the old earl possessed in his nephew that he left the execution of this provision to him It was also enacted by that will, that should the said Letitia die without bearing a son to the said Stanford-Sydney, or should a son born of her die previously to attaining his twenty-first year, then the sum alluded to should become the property of Frederick. The old man died, a prey to the deepest mental affliction, indeed literally heartbroken, shortly after making this will. Frederick, who was honor and integrity personified, determined upon fulfilling all the instructions of his uncle to the very letter." The fruits of the union of Stanford-Sydney and Letitia Hardinage were a daughter and a son. The name of the former was Eliza, that of the latter was Walter. Eliza was a strong and healthy child, Walter was sickly and ailing from his birth. Shortly after the birth of Walter, the father, who had long been in a deep decline, paid the debt of nature. Letitia was then left a widow, with two young children, and nothing but a small farm for her support her high spirit prevented her from applying to the earl of warrington the man whose love she had slighted and scorned and thus she had to struggle with poverty and misfortune in rearing and educating her fatherless progeny the farm which she tenanted was situated in berkshire whither she and her husband had removed immediately after the death of the father of stanford the farm belonged to a gentleman of the name of stevens a merchant of respectability and property in the city of london it was the year 1829 that Robert Stevens appeared at the farmhouse to announce the death of his father and his inheritance of all the landed property which had belonged to the deceased. The widow was considerably in arrears of rent. Stevens inquired into her condition and prospects and learned from her lips her entire history that history which from motives of disappointed pride she had religiously concealed from her children. She was well aware of the provisions of the late earl's will, but she had determined not to acquaint either Eliza or Walter with the clause relative to the fortune, until the majority of the latter. Towards Stevens she did not manifest the same reserve, the revelation of that fact being necessary to convince him that she possessed good perspective chances of settling those long arrears, which she was in the meantime totally unable to liquidate. Robert Stevens was immediately attracted towards that family. It was not the beauty of Eliza which struck him. He was a cold, calculating man of the world, and considered female loveliness as mere dross compared to sterling gold. He found that Walter was an amiable and simple-hearted youth, and he hoped to turn to his own advantage the immense inheritance which awaited the lad at his majority. He accordingly treated Mrs. Sidney with every indulgence, forgiving her the arrears already accumulated, and lowering her rent in future." he thus gained an immense influence over the family and when a sudden malady threw the widow upon her deathbed, it was to stephens that she recommended her children stephens manifested the most paternal attention towards the orphans and secured their unbounded gratitude attachment and confidence but his designs were abruptly menaced in an alarming manner the seeds of consumption which had been sown by paternal tradition in the constitution of walter germinated with fatal effect and on the fourteenth of february eighteen forty one he surrendered up his spirit scarcely had the breath left the body of the youth when Stevens, by that species of magic influence which he had already begun to exercise over eliza induced her to assume her brother's garb and she was taught to believe even by the very side of his corpse that immense interests were connected with her compliance with his wish an old woman was the only female attendant at the farmhouse and she was easily persuaded to spread a report amongst the neighbors that it was the daughter who was dead eliza did not stir abroad Stevens managed the funeral and gave instructions for the entry in the parish register of the burial of eliza sydney and as Eliza immediately afterwards repaired to the villa at Clapton, the fraud was not suspected in the neighborhood of the Berkshire farm. Stevens duly communicated the deaths of Mrs. Sidney and Eliza to the Earl of Warrington, and obtained an introduction to this nobleman. He called occasionally in Grosvenor Square, during the interval of four years and nine months which occurred between the reported death of Eliza and the 26th of November, 1835, and invariably took care to mention not only that Walter was in good health, but that he was residing at the villa. His lordship, however, on no occasion expressed a wish to see the young man, for years had failed to wipe away the impression made upon Frederick's mind by the deceased Letitia Hardinge. When Stevens introduced the disguised Eliza to the nobleman as Walter Sidney upon the morning of the 26th of November, the Earl entertained not the least suspicion of fraud. He knew that Stevens was the son of an eminent merchant, and that he was well spoken of in society, and he was moreover anxious to complete a ceremony which only recalled painful reminiscences to his mind. Thus, so far as his lordship was concerned, the deceit was managed with the most complete success, and there is no doubt that the entire scheme might have been carried out, and the secret have remained for ever undiscovered had not a private warning been communicated in time to the Bank of England." such was the complete narrative formed by the statement of the earl of warrington through his solicitor and the confession of eliza Sidney. the history excited the most extraordinary interest in all who heard it and there was a powerful feeling of sympathy and commiseration in favour of eliza even lord warrington himself looked once or twice kindly upon her the examination which elicited all the facts detailed in the narrative, and the evidence gone into to prove the attempt to obtain possession of the money at the Bank of England, occupied until four o'clock in the afternoon, when the magistrate committed Robert Stevens, Hugh Mac and Eliza Sidney to Newgate to take their trials at the approaching session of the Central Criminal Court. End of chapter thirty one Recording by Rosie